Hi everyone, welcome back to the 21 and Sensory podcast with me, Emily. On today's episode, we have Sarah O'Brien. She is an autistic writer and engagement professional currently working within the charity sector. She's known for her witty remarks and commitment to giving those who face disadvantage a voice. Sarah lives and works in London, and in her free time, she can be found reading, crafting, and planning future projects. She is currently writing a post-diagnostic book for Jessica Kingsley Publishers, which is super exciting and something I am definitely going to ask her more about. So, Sarah, do you want to say hi? Hi, yes, I'm Sarah. Um, I am currently, I always forget my age, currently (laughs) 25, um, and... I've been diagnosed for, oh gosh, seven years. Mm-hmm. Um, something I always also forget as well, me and numbers do not get along very well. <laughs> no worries. So how how old, let's jump straight into diagnosis, seeing as you mentioned it. How old were you, because I can't do the maths, <laughs> how old were you when you had your autism diagnosis? Um, so really weirdly, I was, um, not weirdly, I was 18 and I was diagnosed in CAMS. I was one of those ones where they almost hurry up your diagnosis because they realise you're ageing out. Mm-hmm. So I was actually quite lucky. Um, so I only had to wait a year and a half okay. for my diagnosis because of the kind of whole ageing out thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you were, were you like inpatient or were you just being like seen kind of like as an outpatient? So how, how did that kind of work? Uh, so I was being seen as an outpatient because, okay. as many autistic people know, teenage years are um, one of the seven circles of hell. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> so I was struggling a lot with kind of anxiety and depression. And at that point, my psychologist was like, mm, I think there's something else going on here. Have you heard of autism? And I'm like, no, no one's <laughs> mentioned this before, ever. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that was the like first time it kind of come across a radar kind of thing. Yeah, I think I'd always seen kind of other autistic people, kind of generally that really stereotyped white boy autism and kind of autism media. Mm-hmm. Um, but like back in what twenty fourteen, there wasn't the same representation that there is now. So I just didn't see myself in this word until I kind of found myself all over Tumblr and the actually actually autistic hashtags. I was like, these people are exactly like me. How has no one seen this before? Mm -hmm. And did you do that kind of natural thing of just like looking back on the 18 years that you had, you know, been on the planet and stuff kind of falling into place in terms of seeing autistic traits and things like that? Oh, definitely. I mean, like, I look back and realise as a child, I said I was allergic to the bright lights of a disco. Like, <laughs> no one is allergic to lights. Maybe I was just really overwhelmed and mm-hmm. no one kind of saw that as weird. They were just like, oh, yeah, she'll just, like, you know, face away from the lights, cover her ears and pretend the disco isn't happening. That's completely normal. Mm-hmm. I love that. Allergic. That's such a, like, like child way to put it, but it makes total sense. <laughs> yeah. That's so sweet. So how, let's have a look and see what else I was going to ask you. So did you have, um, obviously you've got the autism diagnosis. Do you have like, if you don't mind me asking, do you have like anxiety and like depression sort of like diagnosed and stuff like that? Is that like been a kind of constant for you? 
Um, I would say the kind of depression was more of a constant in my teenage years. Mm -hmm. And then anxiety has kind of been the thing that has underwritten my entire Mm. life. And then kind of more recently, there's been more physical health diagnoses where it was the same thing of thinking, well, I'm sure everyone else feels like this and finding out actually no not everyone Mm -hmm. is overly bendy not everyone is overly tired all the time not everyone turns a different color when it gets cold Mm -hmm. (laughs) okay I see is that like a kind of when you say like bendy is that like kind of like EDS kind of sort of thing where you're kind of like hypermobile um so my me and my doctor disagree um (laughs) In the kind of like, she pushed me into a meltdown and said, well, you're not really communicating what your symptoms are. I think you're just hypermobile. I'm just like, I'm currently crying and you don't care. Mm. Um, <laughs> you haven't really asked me any of the questions about EDS because you think it's super rare. But I know that for autistic people, EDS is not rare. Mm. It's actually fairly common. Mm. Um, so, yeah, my diagnoses are according to them, benign hypermobility, which doesn't feel benign when things fall out of place. I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> um, and Raynaud's and chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia. Okay. That's a lot on your plate all at once. Yeah, wow. it's just, it's very, but it's very like kind of classic autistic person, I find. Like mm-hmm. we all seem to kind of collect these um, yes. diagnoses, which almost feel like badges for how we fight our way through a world that's not made for us Mm. Mm. and it's interesting you say about like eds and like autism because there seems to be a lot of like kind of comorbid stuff like that like i've come across and spoken to a lot of people who are autistic who have eds and i just didn't realize how much eds doesn't it doesn't just affect your joints but it can be like your digestion and stuff like that like internal as well as like you know just like joints and things like that so that must be really tricky especially if you've got the kind of chronic fatigue going on as well that's that's a lot to juggle all at once you can't see this but i am nodding a lot to what you're saying (laughs) i mean just to just to know that you're you know autistic and then have all these other kind of conditions at the same time like how do you find how do you kind of juggle say like work and studying and you know if you've got these conditions going on as well do you have to kind of not plan for things but do you have like certain routines and things like how how do you operate daily is my question (laughs) I think it's just a highly honed skill of Mm self-advocacy which doesn't come naturally in the slightest it's almost something you have to continually work on and develop and figure out how to do and there isn't really a rule book of how to be a good self-advocate for yourself um and it's being that self-advocate and being really good at knowing your own internal states which is not an autistic strength Mm -hmm. (laughs) um and being really honest with those around you about what like the day looks like and what the limits might be and if those limits are different to other days because I think everyone expects that we'll have the same capacity day to day but that's in my opinion never actually true our capacity is so kind of fluctuating and is impacted by so many internal and external factors that often even those that know us really well 
aren't able to kind of guess how good we'll be at doing something on a specific day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I think people don't always realise when they see you, you might be, you know, or if you go to the doctors for something, that might be you on a good day. Like they're not seeing you at your worst and having to advocate for yourself in front of like a professional and trying to prove yourself is really difficult. Yeah, definitely. Mm. And so I mentioned kind of you're studying, you're working. So do you want to kind of explain? So I had, I've had a little look on your website. I stalk everyone before I <laughs> invite them on. And I can see that you did a BSc in psychology, a master's in clinical psychology, and now you're doing a PhD. Is that right? Yeah. So I did my uh, undergraduate degree at Reading mm-hmm. and then kind of stayed at Reading because my support there was really good and I didn't didn't want to do any change first <laughs> um, and then I'm now at King's College London for my PhD which is in health studies research mm-hmm. and it's kind of built on the stuff I did for work and what I kind of took on as what I thought was a personal kind of interest but I realized it's much more like a special interest level of like how much I'm really invested and really interested in what I'm doing in my PhD. Mm-hmm. I guess that's good in a way because does it almost not really feel like work if it's something you're interested in anyway? Oh, definitely. I think when it feels like it comes that naturally, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel as much like work as, say, those tasks that feel extra laborious because you've actually got to switch your brain on to do them. Mm-hmm. When it's the things that your brain actually gets really happy doing, then it doesn't feel as much like work. But the flip side of that is I think for like the two and a bit years I've been working that I was working for autism charities, my brain never really switched off because my professional work blended into my personal life. Mm -hmm. And so that division never existed because whatever I did in my personal life was professional development and my professional development blended into how I viewed myself personally. Mm. Okay. That's interesting. It's interesting to see the flip side of it and it's, it's difficult because you don't want to almost get your like lines crossed in terms of not knowing if it's like work or play kind of thing. Um, but it's, it's interesting that like what, what made you decide, do you think, like were you just kind of interested in psychology from the start like what made you want to kind of go down that avenue of like study oh I think it was a hundred percent fueled by getting an autism diagnosis okay Mm -hmm. um I think because I was so intrigued by the idea of like what autism was and it being seen as abnormal psychology and I also was in I would say a really bad place after getting my diagnosis because Mm -hmm. I was taught that like autism was abnormal and it was wrong and here's all the things that you absolutely suck at by the way we watched you for three hours and this is what we thought Mm. I wanted to find out more about that and almost kind of use the subject to figure out how people worked because Mm -hmm. I've always done that through um reading extensively and watching films and tv to try figure out how other people work and so psychology for me leaned into that interest in other people but then taking a more scientific view of how other people work mm-hmm. so it felt like a natural fit and it was the kind of 
exact geekery that I really enjoyed. So that Excellent. Made, yeah. <laughs> um, so that worked really well for like the three years of doing the degree, and I got to kind of see how other people spoke about autism, and then found the disability community and started to form some like really positive ways of looking at myself and my mm-hmm. diagnosis. And that came at the same point of while at university learning all the negative ways that autism was still framed in research. Mm. And I was just like, oh, shit. Um, (laughs) Well, I've got to sit through this now. This is going to be really awkward because Mm. I know that a lot of these things are wrong. I'm starting to meet more autistic people and realise these are really stigmatising ways of telling people about autism. And also we're relying entirely on research that has had no autistic input. Mm. Um, so I went through that phase and then in my master's focused more on autism because there's that flexibility to do so and found all of the kind of participatory research that was done with autistic people and I was like oh great we're moving in a good direction we can actually do this this is going Mm. great autistic people can be included in the things about us and then that just created like this whole career and um special interest and then PhD focus for me because I was like well you know what research has been bad but it doesn't have to stay bad Mm -hmm. and it can be done with people rather than about people Mm -hmm. but that can't be done unless there are people really pushing for it Mm -hmm. oh wait I can be one of those people Mm -hmm. I like that you've you've taken that kind of view of I'm just going to take it upon myself then if you know I can I can kind of change the future of this. And it's really interesting how you say, you know, research being about people rather than with people. And it's really great to see autistic people actually being included in research or being like asked to be like, you know, assistant researchers on studies and things like that. I think it's really great to see because we just, we have that lived experience that you're just, you're never going to get if you're neurotypical. (laughs) Mm, Definitely. Yeah. So how you said that like your university, you kind of stayed on at Reading because it was like a nice kind of place and they were supportive and obviously change is horrible as an autistic person. So did you find that like their student support services were good? I'm always like intrigued to hear how like good or bad people's university experiences. I think for me, like the student support services weren't great. Um, But it was more the things that really kind of tipped it over into being a place I could enjoy Mm -hmm. was the students union and my specialist mentor. I mean, like I knew them for four years and I was able to kind of like really create an environment and a mentor mentee relationship that worked for me. Mm -hmm. And so that's something I didn't want to step away from. And also I'd got really involved in student activism with the students union and I didn't really want to make those new relationships. And I knew that I was being listened to when I spoke to my students union and didn't want to chance that not happening somewhere else. Mm -hmm. That's fair enough. I totally appreciate that. You know, if you're comfortable somewhere, why not (laughs) like stay there and, especially if you've like built up all those relationships and stuff like it's difficult as an autistic person to you know build relationships and then once you've you know done that it's nice to 
just enjoy them for a bit especially if you found like a good like mentor and stuff like that I think that's really important at university is that you can have like someone to rely on at least so that's really nice to hear (laughs) so let's chat a little bit more about um your writing so I was going to ask you how did you start out kind of writing on your blog and for like media articles and also um obviously I came across you on Twitter so I really enjoy like how honest your writing is and like obviously how relatable it is but kind of what what kind of drew you to that kind of online platform and just writing online um I think for me Twitter was something I had always used but I kind of re-emerged on it through student activism and um talking to other disabled activists so that was probably like 2016 mm-hmm. and then used it to network with researchers who were doing uh, participatory research in like 2017 and then I guess I kind of like I felt sure enough in my diagnosis at that point to start to use my voice to describe my experiences and people kind of liked that Mm -hmm. um so this is like it's weird because I I've seen Twitter go through like phases so this is like pre pete warmby and um Mm -hmm. emily k so like it was a much smaller space being on autistic twitter then you've now got like much bigger voices who are sharing information in really engaging ways and so yeah i kind of like found a bit of autistic community there and met a lot of people who were kind of from i guess american um, autistic communities and the kind of uk autistic communities and I was doing a lot of writing for my job at the time about explaining autism to kind of different professionals and autistic people mm-hmm. and just really kind of learning from other autistic people about how they were describing their experiences and how it married up with my own and then just started churning out bits of writing because I'd always been told I was a really bad writer by my English teachers and that I had no capacity for writing in a way that made sense. Really? Oh, they were horrible. <laughs> what is it with teachers having, like, as soon as you grow up, like, you, it sticks with you, doesn't it? Like, just the negative energy from teachers, as well as some of the positive stuff, but it's always the negative stuff you remember. Like, how could you say that to a child? Yeah, and I'd always been told, like, oh, your inferences about stuff are just always wrong. They're always too out of the box. And then years later, there comes an autism diagnosis out of the mm-hmm. box. <laughs> I see. Um, so, yeah, I'd been told I couldn't write, which was a bit um, shitty to hear. Mm. But I'd always been told that I could speak really well. And so I just figured, why don't I just write how I speak? Kind of, I don't like writing formally. I like writing in a conversational tone. So no, why not write? like it's a conversation mm-hmm. um which is really easy to do for me through twitter and blogs because it's that much shorter form style of writing and mm-hmm. i don't know i like the ability to add the nuance later if needed mm-hmm. um so yeah i just started writing through twitter and thought maybe i should try doing this in a bit longer form of writing and so then came the blog and then a couple of 
kind of media pieces and then kind of like a toolkit of resources for autistic people and then suddenly I'm writing a book proposal (laughs) because I realized that every book that I read after my diagnosis actually made my relationship with autism so much worse because it was all either written for a parent or for an autistic man because at that point we didn't really see anything about autistic women mm-hmm. and so I was never the intended audience of the books that I was reading mm. um, and I, autism wasn't written about in a positive way and all I could find was a, like google searches from hell where you're just finding the worst terms to define yourself mm. and then I thought I don't want this to be what other young people have to put up with yeah so I want to take what I'm what I've learned in this journey for myself and what I've tried to do in kind of building that positive autistic identity for other young people Mm -hmm. and just write it in a book that's so exciting and so it's it's a post-diagnostic book so it's it's for after people are diagnosed is that right um I guess so so it's kind of like the things that I've always defined autism as is kind of like you need to understand it first to know what the terms are Mm. and then once you know kind of you have the language to describe yourself you're then able to thrive so I guess learning how to define autism in a way that's not negative is good for anyone whether they're diagnosed or not Mm. and then learning how to thrive is also good whether you're diagnosed or not so I guess it's slightly lesser post-diagnostic support book and a here's something to read once you're kind of sure you define as autistic right because diagnosis as we all know is kind of incredibly inaccessible to Mm -hmm. so many autistic people because of waiting lists and kind of private versus nhs or um Mm -hmm. publicly funded diagnosis Mm. and also kind of any additional um marginalization or intersection on top that means you might not get picked up by the clinician that you're seeing i mean even you earlier saying was it a year and a half that you waited and you you made that sound short (laughs) and that's a that's a long time to wait but obviously i know people have oh you know some of the waiting lists are like three years or something ridiculous but it's crazy to think that you know the way you put it that actually oh, a year and a half wasn't wasn't that long to wait in the grand scheme of things yeah like when I think about it it was probably a fair proportion of my life at the time but mm-hmm. seeing now that like for some people it's five or seven years from first kind of like noticing that this might mm-hmm. be autism to actually getting a diagnosis like I got off pretty lightly yeah but I think I got off so lightly because no one I'd ever thought of autism around me so we didn't have that kind of like long thinking and debating phase it was mm-hmm. kind of straight to referral because I was already being seen by someone I mean I was being seen by that psychologist for like two years before they were like oh maybe it's this oh really gosh that's so interesting like it's interesting what they do and don't pick up initially but then even like two years down the line as well You'd think maybe they might have been able to like point you in the right direction or something. Yeah, you'd hope. But I think mm. given how underfunded and yeah. um, 
overworked so many mental health services are they are meant to be the kind of ones picking this up and like everyone around us is meant to be the are meant to be the ones picking this up but no one's really got the time to look at us with the depth that we need yeah. to kind of get this flagged as early as we need it mm. yeah that's so true and i think that's why i think especially there's so many like late diagnosed women is we just kind of go under the radar and if you're not really seen as a as an issue and you're muddling along and masking your way through life people just don't pick up on it do they no and i think because autism is still viewed as like a clinical difference mm. it almost has to be having a bad effect on bad or negative impact on your life so a clinically significant impact for you to get the diagnosis mm. and until autism is kind of emancipated from that definition we're still going to be stuck in the idea that something has to be wrong or kind of atypical with someone for them to receive that diagnosis mm. i feel like we could talk about this <laughs> in so much like depth it's it's so frustrating but i think just the more conversations and the more like you know the more people come across this stuff on like twitter and online it's it's really good to change the narrative of what autism is and that it isn't a look um Mm. which particularly annoys me when people say oh you don't look autistic but it's not a look (laughs) yeah and i think that also gets into the kind of is autism a hidden disability Mm. well it's not i mean i have so many issues with the idea of hidden disabilities but there's no way that autism is a hidden disability it's more people have been trained to look for the things that autism like air quotes should be rather than Mm. what autism is and so Mm. like autism is not a performance you're not meant to be looking out for us performing our autism it's in every way that we like think do and act Mm. and speak but i think people have been so kind of ignorant to what those kind of autistic behaviors are for so long that they're like oh it's invisible because i don't see it or Mm -hmm. i only see it when you're in distress and if your condition is only described when you're in distress then that's incredibly negative Mm. yeah that's a really good point to i don't even know how to put it but yeah that's a really good point (laughs) yeah like the kind of um autism is categorized by our distress behaviors rather than are happy behaviors mm-hmm. when actually it's a whole lived experience that we can't necessarily manage how how we look and feel and act and it's it can get on top of you really quickly yeah and just coming back to your book briefly how i'm just very intrigued to know did you sort of pitch the idea to the publishers or did the publishers come to you like I don't know, book, like, writing fascinates me and the process of actually, like, writing. (laughs) Um, So it's a bit of a weird one. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'd written the proposal initially and sent it off to JKP and then got onto a bit of burnout at work, so was unable to kind of, like, move it forward. I think that was, like, 2019. Mm -hmm. And then in 2020, there was a kind of project being brought together 
and I got in contact with one of the editors from JKP and was like, oh, I had this idea for a book. I don't know if it's like still something you guys would want. And she was like, actually, don't be silly. We really want that. Um, and so it was kind of a combination of like, I'd originally pitched it and then it was like, oh, no, this is a project that will never like, you know, get off the ground because okay. I'm so like terrible at juggling things because I want to say yes to everything. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of came back around as, don't be silly like you can do this and we really want to hear from you um like chat to me and we'll see if it works and if it works for you and works for us then we'll do it okay that's so interesting that's so it's so nice to hear that like positive confirmation of like hell yeah we want it like (laughs) we can see a like you know not like a gap in the market for it but like it's something that people will benefit from that's like nice to hear that feedback (laughs) And also it being kind of like, we want to see, like we've seen your um, Twitter posts and your blog writing and kind of the other things that you've written and love your tone of voice, which again was just like weird external validation given that like the external invalidation Mm. I'd received previously was just like, no, no, you can't write. Stop that. Put down that pen. Stop typing on that keyboard and don't like give your views ever Mm. it kind of flipping from that to actually no like please we want your your voice your autistic voice to help other autistic people create their own autistic voice that isn't negative about themselves but instead that kind of like positive framing on something that has historically been classed as negative Mm -hmm. i'd i'd love I'd love for this teacher that said this about you and your writing to see where you are now, see how much studying you've gone through and the fact that you're writing a book right now and just, I don't know, just be like, look at, look at me. <laughs> oh yeah. Like this book will definitely be my like Diana Spencer revenge dress. Yes. That I will just show <laughs> to my old school. <laughs> Yes, please, please go and do a talk at your old school. You, you should, definitely. <laughs> so talking about talking in schools, you kind of work as an engagement professional, is that right? And you've kind of working in the charity sector at the moment. Do you do that alongside your PhD or is that something you kind of dip in and out of? Um, so I started off, um, so I graduated from university and saw a job at, at an autism charity to kind of work with autistic young people in Mm -hmm. what they called their participation team so it's kind of working with autistic young people who are on specific panels which are all kind of framed around um topics that they would work on so one was just kind of general campaigning one was education one was healthcare and one was on research Mm -hmm. i was like well this is really cool um so it's just i know it was the nice thing of being an autistic person in that role and was innately knowing how to work with a group of autistic young people and the autistic young people being able to see themselves reflected in the staff that were supporting them. Mm-hmm. Um, and alongside that, I did a bit of kind of policy work. So like the working on the autism strategy and the send review and kind of bits and pieces that come up in policy in parliament to do with autism Mm. mainly around kind of education and health at that point um and that's when I realized I really enjoyed involvement engagement participation and working with communities 
and was kind of working with them in different kind of areas for about two years and kind of building up those skills of like going from university where I couldn't do any kind of oral presentations in front of anyone because I was so terrified Mm -hmm. and so I did alternative assessments to suddenly like delivering autism training to like 100 200 400 people I was like (laughs) yeah I was like oh I can't talk about this assignment in front of my peers but I can talk about autism in a funny and engaging way in front of 400 people how strange (laughs) I wonder what the connection is here (laughs) um so yeah like making that leap and then I always kind of kept my interest in research and then moved to a research charity where I got to do that same kind of involvement facilitation thing and learn a bit more of the kind of nitty gritty bits of research and how that works Um, and then finished that in September and started the PhD in October but I still Mm -hmm. do a bit of kind of consultancy on the side with um, kind of NHS and like charity organisations. Okay, that sounds like a good like mix to be able to still kind of, you know, dip into it whilst doing your PhD. Is your PhD, is it like a four year? Yeah, so I'm like weirdly based in the Florence Nightingale Faculty of Nursing, Midwifery and Palliative Care. And then um, in that focusing on like the methodologies of research. So because it's looking at inclusive involvement, so how inclusively we can work with people to help design research with them Mm -hmm. design healthcare with them and involve them in decision making about their um, care and services so it's still kind of taking that thread from Mm -hmm. the work I'd done before it's kind of looking at the how we do that and how that works which was the bit that I was always so like interested in while doing it Mm -hmm. because I don't know, I like to take the debate about it onto a higher level because there's so many issues with how involvement is currently done, often in exclusionary ways. Mm. Sorry, this is like a bit of a special interest. No, go for it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, there's so many issues with like how it's done Mm. and often people have to push through and work in the ways that always always seem to happen. So kind of the status quo whereas I want to look at the things that we can do to change that, to make it work in ways that are better, because mm-hmm. much like any kind of campaigning, the same debates have continued on for decades without any change. Mm-hmm. And so my PhD is looking at um, if new ways of doing it can actually make things more inclusive and how sustainable that inclusion is, because no one really knows because mm. everyone's too scared to make a change yeah that is that's always the case time and time again isn't it is that it's they're just too scared to to make that change but it would be so beneficial if and when they do and it sounds like what you're doing is just such a step in the right direction of actually considering people from all walks of life which is what you know research definitely should be doing <laughs> Yeah, and I think it's the, like, not to toot my own horn, but, like, having the benefit of 
um, having been the person who has involved others through my work in the charity sector and research projects that I've like worked on mm-hmm. and also been someone who has been like the involved person yeah. so like having that like nice unique little kind of experience of both mm-hmm. the fact that you've seen it from both sides and can talk from your own experience about you know the negative parts of everything you've come into contact with like it's good that you've got that experience and you can kind of build on it yeah and what I mean we've talked all about kind of autism and obviously like your special interests and your PhD and stuff what what do you do in your downtime if you have any downtime it sounds like you're a very busy person (laughs) um I would say I'm definitely a busy person like um being a person that always says yes so I like to do my PhD currently writing my book and I'm also a carer Um, so when I do get free time it's either writing which weirdly other people say is not a downtime activity but for me if I'm able to get words down on a page and that kind of empties out my brain yeah that is downtime Mm -hmm. and I'm also a very avid cross-stitcher um but I haven't had the brain capacity for it at the moment which to me sounds silly because I've always found cross-stitch to be something that it's just very methodical you don't have to think about it Mm -hmm. but I almost feel like I'm unable to think about it at the moment because I know it's so time consuming Mm -hmm. to kind of stitch and get the progress but I'm just like I need to do the other things first yeah I get I get what you mean like I guess other stuff gets prioritized over something like that but yeah like you say it is important to I don't know step away from things every so often but I get that like like you say like with cross stitch to see progress you've got to be like at it for yeah <laughs> for a good amount of time so do you like kind of do you do like the ones where you can get like almost like 10 is it not, not like templates but like guides of designs or do you do like your own thing oh I definitely always get the guides you get the guides <laughs> yeah the the kits are where it's at like I don't mm-hmm. think I'm creative enough to kind of like create my own mm-hmm. I just like to take other people's designs and then create it um because I find there's a lot more safety and certainty in that mm. and you know exactly how it's going to go and I think that as a like zoning out hobby mm-hmm. is perfect like following someone else's rules and paths to get to a conclusion that you already know is going to be there yeah like it's incredibly like satisfactory and there is no anxiety in that because you're just doing something incredibly repetitive mm-hmm. i don't know it's yeah. almost like stimming but very for a very long time mm-hmm that's how i feel like about like coloring like oh yeah like a coloring book or something like that because it's like a pre-made design you don't have to think about it but it's the methodicalness of just like the repetition of coloring is so like mindful i think but yeah and there isn't that you know like oh i have to make the thing (laughs) and that must be like incredibly relaxing on the flip side of being an illustrator because you don't have Mm. to come up with the idea it's someone else's idea and the only kind of real creative outlet you have to do is what colors and what medium of colors do i have to use (laughs) 
it takes up little brain power whereas if i'm trying to draw something for like social media i'm like oh i really gotta think about this and be in the right mood whereas for coloring you can just sit and do it in front of the tv yeah (laughs) yeah no i definitely i'm with you on like it's nice to have like arty hobbies as well i think like craft yeah (laughs) and i think that's something that's really kind of like I don't know, almost unexpected of autistic people. Like mm. we've for so long been described as very, I don't know, STEMI people. Mm. So very science focused and like very kind of puzzle focused and like wanting to solve the whole world in our free time by like just thinking of ways to make it better when really like creative outlets are things that, really tap into the autistic brain and that kind of like repetition or kind of soothing nature Mm. and I think thinking again about that kind of idea of it being quite stimmy because you are just kind of creating something and it flows out of your body and releases all of that kind of built-up tension and is often quite repetitive when it comes to crafting or Mm. at least follows a very kind of rule-based way of doing something no, I definitely agree. And you mentioned like stimming as well, like it being almost like a form of like not not necessarily a hobby, but like a kind of um, separate like way to just like release stress and stuff. Do you find, are you quite a like stimmy person kind of thing? Do you, are you like a fidget toy person? What sort of kind of way do you sort of exist? <laughs> Um, I would say my biggest stim is chewing gum, which okay <laughs> has been quite like problematic, particularly because it was like the most socially acceptable stim I've been able to do for like the entirety of my like adolescence and adult yeah. life, mm-hmm. but is also deeply maligned in schools. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to stick this on a table. I'm just <laughs> using it to like stim. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even know that that's what I was doing. Mm. Um, and definitely a stim toy person like always wanting to have something either in my hands or I'm just like playing with my hands and Mm. which is also extra fun being extra bendy (laughs) (laughs) um yeah I think it for me it's either gum or something in my hands Mm -hmm. or just like touching something that feels nice like I think that's why I wear the kind of clothes that I wear because I wear the fabrics that I want to be able to touch and feel. I don't want to wear the fabrics that don't feel nice. Mm. I want to, it's like, for me, it's the fabrics aren't a discomfort thing. It's whether I'm able to stim with them thing, mm-hmm. which I don't know. I've not seen a lot of that talked about. It's more like, oh, autistic people can't handle labels or buttons or mm-hmm. laces or like, those sorts of things it's Mm -hmm. more for me I won't wear a fabric unless I can stim with it and fortunately uncomfortable fabrics I can't stim with (laughs) Mm -hmm. that's really interesting like the way you said that because to me like clothing's a really like sensory thing and like you just said that's kind of how it's usually perceived as you know we can't tolerate this or we like seek out that but actually you're saying it from the point of view that it's something that's like comforting to you and something that you know might kind of ground you if you can 
you know, stim with it. That's re- it's a really interesting like other way to look at it. <laughs> yeah, I would definitely say for me is the kind of like stimming potential is mm. bigger than the sensory potential, but like the sensory mm-hmm. feeds into the stimming and mm-hmm. the stimming feeds into the sensory sort of thing. It's so interesting, isn't it? Like the crossover yeah. between things. <laughs> and like not not being able, but not knowing these things until someone else says it. And then you're like, yeah. oh, wait, no, this could be a thing. I can't mm-hmm. believe someone's been in my brain and like figured out this word or way of talking about something that I've never mm-hmm. had before. Mm-hmm. And especially on like sites like Twitter and Instagram, you like see like other people's coping mechanisms and things and you think, oh, that's why I do that. Or you see it and you think oh I, I could try that like <laughs> it gives you almost like ideas and like different ways of looking at things even if you are like autistic yourself yeah and I think that connection to a community mm. it is kind of like a double-edged sword of why doesn't this community exist in my real life I'm not sorry not my real life my like in-person life um mm. and also it can be either a really welcoming community or one that can turn on you really quickly yeah um so you can get a lot of solidarity and support and friendship from the autistic community online but there's almost at least for people who are new to it so many idiosyncratic rules and like things that don't seem to make sense like ways you have to talk about autism and Mm -hmm. things we will all instantly jump on and people deciding to die on every single hill and calling everything out and it can be exhausting feeling like you have to do that as well Mm -hmm. and kind of stand alongside every person and call out every single thing that is wrong with how others talk about autism and how like the community works together Mm -hmm. but I think we can just kind of like take the bits of the community that we want to uh, talk about the things that we want to reach out to those that we want to and not have to engage with everything because like it's incredibly overwhelming to think about engaging with every single thing that's going on in the autistic community and can also be very triggering mm-hmm. yeah it's really it's really interesting just the way you've put that and I think I was talking to Pete um, Warby who you mentioned earlier in a previous um, podcast episode and he was saying that what I was asking him I was like do you know what it's like to feel like he, he almost felt like this responsibility as someone who had all these followers um, to you know get things right all the time and it's really difficult because with a following it's really quite scary to you know potentially say something slightly wrong and have to backtrack Mm. yeah because like if I think back to what I think it was like three years ago now I had 4,000 less followers than what I currently have Um, and you can go from like just almost talking to yourself on the internet and that's how it feels to suddenly you are held accountable for every word you say and if it doesn't align perfectly with every single person's experience or view then it almost becomes open season on you Mm -hmm. and that's just like not fair for anyone Mm -hmm. because 
why would we expect someone to change who they are when they gain more people who want to listen to them? Because if they were authentic as themselves with a smaller following, do they then have to become an inauthentic version of themselves with a larger following? Yeah. And it puts, as you said, so much pressure on people to be right all the time, to reflect all of these experiences all the time. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you just want to like talk about how shitty your day was and not have someone go, well, that wasn't my day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's incredibly difficult and incredibly demanding to be an autistic person online because you're almost not allowed to exist as an autistic person. You have to exist as an autistic advocate. Mm -hmm. And that is not appropriate to demand of everyone. Mm. And do you find it like difficult? Because I guess, like you say, sometimes you just want to like talk about how shitty your day was. Like, do you find it hard? Because obviously like your Twitter is like a professional kind of outlet as well like it's a way that you connect with other like you know academics or researchers and things like that and do you sometimes just want to be yourself and not almost have those people watching <laughs> I think it's a realization I came to like unfortunately probably too late um that my as I said earlier the kind of my professionalism is blended so tightly with my like personal self mm. that I can't segregate the two and so it's something I've never actually tried to do because if I was to kind of conceal these parts of myself and attempt to appear more professional, mm. then that would be me being inauthentic. Mm. And it would almost be kind of a type of, I guess, digital masking where I'm lying about the reality of my experience and mm. I think the honesty is so much more useful. Mm. So I've always um, made the, I guess, unconscious decision, subconscious. It feels like it's not unconscious because I'm definitely awake while making it. Um, (laughs) The decision that like my Twitter, which started off as personal, then dipped into professional will always remain that kind of, quasi semi personal professional blend because mm-hmm. there's no other way for me to be yeah and also like i guess the breakdown of like my twitter is a weird mix of like academics who follow me for whatever reason of being an autistic person online autistic mm-hmm. people who follow me because i chat about autism and then a whole bunch of like um people who work in healthcare from the time that I was like doing healthcare related work Mm -hmm. and then also just people who like work in the sector that I work in Mm. so because that all of that is um informed by every part of me taking away parts of me doesn't work for that and I know that that's not sustainable for other people or appropriate for other people but it's just what seems to work for me Mm -hmm. And also I'd like to think that, you know, from the flip side of what I was saying, you know, like worrying about professionals and stuff like that, actually, if they are autism researchers or academics and stuff like that, they should be a very open and um, not interested as such, but they should 
be very welcoming of the fact that you're being your authentic self and should be not learning from you, but, you know, being able to just see your experience online and take you for who you are is really important. And like you say, you're this kind of blended kind of professional, but also you are an autistic person at the end of the day. They should uh, kind of, I'm, what I'm trying to say is they should appreciate your <laughs> your views as someone who's a bit of both. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the idea of it that I came to. I mean, it was like the uh, the idea of it that I came to with like a tiny bit of therapy where I was yeah. like, cool, this feels too personal to be professional and professional to be personal. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely kind of it was it took a long time to get to that level of comfort. But I think. I still do share content as if I'm just talking to myself and kind of creating almost like a diary of things I'd want to remember and Mm -hmm. kind of note down for the future Mm -hmm. and then it just turns out that people interact with that and I think for me that is my authenticity and that's how I was able to kind of like reconcile the being overly sincere on main type vibe that I just have Mm -hmm. and where can I feel like we keep mentioning your social media where can people actually follow you we should really mention your (laughs) social media handles and i'll put them in the show notes as well um so twitter i am at sarah marie ob it's very inventive Mm. i know (laughs) um and then on instagram i don't do as much over there because i get scared by the idea of sharing pictures rather than words which is ironic given that (laughs) i always thought i was terrible at words i'm just at sarah marie o'brien Okay, fab. I'll pop those both below. And maybe I'll put your website below as well, because that's where I found out some more information on you. So, <laughs> Oh, yes, a website that definitely needs updating. <laughs> <laughs> that's the only thing about, like, I've got, like, a portfolio website as well. It's just it's so much effort, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, definitely. And every time you do something, you're like, I should really put that on my website. <laughs> I was just like, I don't want to be held accountable to a little web page of myself. I know. It's difficult, isn't it? Like, it's almost like a living CV. It's like, are people checking this? Because I should really update it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you feel the same. <laughs> well, we've been almost chatting for an hour, which has gone very quickly. And I feel that there's so much more we could talk about. But um, yeah, thank you so much for being up for coming on the podcast and good luck with the book it's super exciting um do you know i think you said it was out like 2023 is that right uh it's coming out in spring 2023 i think from talking to my editor um but yeah i've like got sixty-four thousand words that i just need to like figure out how to make them the final ones is that is that that's the word like count is it um word count at the moment so i think they're allowing me to go up to like seventy-five thousand if i need to because she was mm-hmm. like i like your writing style it's um padded but in a good way because <laughs> it just makes sense for you to use the amount of words to say yeah. the things you want to say okay that's nice to hear <laughs> yeah okay so you've got like you've got like a nice word count to play with that's good to yeah hear. <laughs> Well, we'll make sure you go and follow Sarah, everyone, if you want to stay up to date with like how her book is going. Because I know you kind of like tweet like every so often about how it's going and like the manuscript and stuff. So, 
yeah make sure to go follow her um yeah thanks so much for coming on <laughs> no worries